stop. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday. It's already June 27th, 2014. This week we've got episode 332 coming to you from Studio D at the IAQ Radio and IAQ Training Institute World Headquarters in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes and here with me in the studio is our engineer, Jessica Lawson. Well, good afternoon. Good day, Jess. Things are going well so far. Back in Studio C in McKees Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's a great summer day in McKees Rocks, Joe. Beautiful day. All right. And joining us actually for halftime today will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include an interview with, we're, we're going down under today, Cliff. Uh, we're going to bring in David Lark. David is the principal mycologist at Mold Lab in Newcastle, Australia. Friend of the show and a friend of ours and looking forward to a great interview with him. Of course, at halftime, we'll bring the good doctor in, Dr. Weil. He's got to go talk about some asbestos cases at one, so we'll only catch him for a little bit at halftime. But before we get started, let's stop for 20 seconds and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com clean facts and cleaning and maintenance management magazine your source for cleaning and maintenance news visit them at clean c-l-e-a-n-f-a-x.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of ieq radio when you inquire about their services and products Okay. Hey, it was great to see, by the way, Jeff Cross from Clean Facts and uh, Andy Robinson, Bill Yaden from John Don last week at the uh, Violin Summit. Great, great uh, time there. Good, good show. And Cliff's blog was fantastic. Hopefully everybody got it. We also have started sending the blog out. We're going to send that out midweek now, give people a little time to uh, take a look at Cliff's blog, made a little more spotlight on that, and also give people a little more heads up on who's going to be on the show. So that's gone real well so far. Of course, you can download the show from our website. Go to iaqradio.com. You can either stream right there from the homepage or follow the link that says go to show, and you can download from there. You can also, of course, get the show from iTunes. And we have continuing education credits available just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in the answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krosowski, Contest Metal Products, Mars PA, for identifying Built to Last as the business book that investigates the question, why are some companies able to achieve and sustain success through multiple generations of leaders across decades and even centuries? Among the book's findings are Preserve the Core, Stimulate Progress, Big Hairy Audacious Schools, and The Genius of the Ant. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, June 27, 2014, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for well over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. And look, we hope to see you at the upcoming uh, event that 
Triska's holding with IAQ Radio, and Joe will probably talk a little bit more about that at halftime. Now for this week's trivia question. To which fungal division do mushrooms belong? Back to you, Joe. Oh, we're up to divisions, are we? Okay, let me think. Uh, let's see. Uh, I can't remember how it goes now. Um, Kingdom, Fallon, well, we'll get David to help us with that one. <laughs> anyway, but our guest today is Mr. David Lark. And what a great guy. We, we met last year uh, at the... Um, we had our, our annual summer break last year at Hidden Valley, and this year we'll, we'll be at Seven Springs, and, and we look forward to seeing some of our listeners there. But uh, we met David there. He's a principal mycologist at the Mold Lab. Uh, actually, actually, that's the name, Mold Lab, but they use the U, M-O-U-L-D Lab, located in Newcastle, Australia. Mold Lab is one of Australia's few laboratories that specialize in environmental mycology as, and its relation with indoor environments and the health of occupants. David is a graduate microbiologist and a professional mycologist. He's got over 40 years of experience in a variety of different settings, and we look forward to kind of going back over some of those later as, as we go through the show. He's presented training, published research papers and posters locally and internationally. He's also co-authored several granted patents in the field of application of biocides to control mold and bacterial growth. He's a scientific advisor and consultant mycologist to many of the mold remediators and water damage folks and has a mold-focused research project going in several states of Australia. He's also known throughout the Australian IAQ mold and water damage industries as the go-to guy when it comes to their mold assessment and microbiology issues, and he also does expert witness to, uh, support services. He has appeared on A Current Affair, a radio interview, uh, particularly in reference to the aftermath of the Queensland floods. And last year, like I said, we met at Hidden Valley. He was continuing his constant quest for knowledge. He had just gone from the, the Macron Institute to do an advanced, uh, advanced micro, uh, I guess, um, advanced uh, microscopy course for uh, fungal identification. And then uh, Cliff and I, of course, were impressed with his knowledge and the fact that he's, he's out there still trying to learn. In fact, I learned this morning he's headed over to uh, the ISIAC uh, conference next week. And uh, he's got a tremendous diverse education and background. We look forward to bringing him on in just a minute. We've got some music for him. Oh, here he is from Oz, David Lark. Hello, David. Uh, that was interesting. Um, you never know what Cliff's going to come up with on the music. Uh, welcome from Oz. Uh, good to good to have you on the show, David. Hey, tell it's us a little bit. Uh, what about the Mold Lab here? How long have you been on? Had your own laboratory, Mold Lab? I don't think it's been all that long now, has it? It's just formed four years ago. Four years now, and and this is your company, correct? Oh yes. Uh... You know, we've got a small and dedicated staff of six, uh, balanced between scientific and administrative. And, uh, yeah, we, Jill and I, formed the company uh, four years ago, and we're still the sole directors. You know, I met your lovely wife, Jill, on my last uh, last time we got together in Australia, and um, I was impressed with her knowledge of the industry. You know, you two seem to make a great team. Uh, she... She kind of holds down the fort, and you you run around and go to all these conferences and everything. We did talk before the show. You're going to uh, is it Japan the next ISIAC indoor air conference? Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Okay. All right. Great. Um, that, that we'd like to talk to you a little bit after that's over, maybe, and, and get your thoughts on what happened over there. Um, you know, Dr. Wow and I recently were over and we attended the, and spoke at the Jenna Dyko Mold and Restoration Conference, and you were also a speaker there. And it was a well-attended event. We had about, I think, 180 people there. Is this a common type of event in Australia? Uh, we don't have enough of those sorts of events. It seems in your country there's a, a trade show every two weeks or so, but uh, we only get to have uh, an event like that where everyone gets together. 
probably uh, once every year, and that's the fourth time that particular event has been uh, happening, and uh, it's usually in Melbourne. Previously, it's been on the Gold Coast, which is a bit of a warmer location, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a feature now on our calendar, and people look forward to it. Now, I know, what, two years ago, maybe, um, was indoor air over there as well in, in Sydney, I believe? Uh, in Brisbane in uh, 2012, yeah. And that's a big international show. How was that? Uh, I'm sure you were there, and, and how was the attendance there? Uh, yes, uh, that was a real big thing for Australia. I think it was the first time that... Um, healthy buildings had been held in the southern hemisphere. I think there were over uh, somewhere between twelve and 1,300 people there, which for us is huge. And uh, to, to go to something uh, for an Australian to attend where there's nine concurrent sessions running is uh, mind-blowing, but happens at, at your end all the time, I know. But for us, the amount of information was just fantastic. You know, in the U.S., and I'll bring Cliff in here in a moment, but in the U.S., there's a lot of companies, I don't know if there's a lot, but there's a, there's a good many that just do mold assessment or mold remediation. Some do both. Um, and there are also disaster restoration companies that, you know, they do some mold remediation in addition to their carpet, fire, water. And there's some, you know, waterproofing companies that do a little mold remediation. Um, and then we have industrial hygiene companies that also include mold assessment and we have some you know people who just specialize in indoor air quality consulting and I'm, I'm curious if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about you know is it similar in Australia or is it quite different it's it's probably what you had maybe 25 years ago here it's uh, more likely that assessment and remediation will still be done by the same company uh, not always as the realization is sinking in that separate, you know, separation of these responsibilities has certain benefits, and therefore segregation of the respective duties and the emergence of specialist IEPs is just starting to occur here. Um, yeah, we prefer to send assessment work onto those people now, whereas in the past I did a lot of on-site mold assessments myself, and uh, yeah, but the the edges are still blurred. The the differentiation of companies into specialisation uh, is slower here because, you know, we've only got one twentieth of your population. So the industry as such is, is relative to that population number. And, you, you know, things are just coming around, I guess. you, As I recall, there's only a couple major labs in, in the whole country. Is that accurate? Uh, there's... Probably uh, only two specialist mycology, microbiology companies like ours in the country. Uh, there are probably 10 or a dozen generalist labs that do food work and they do, some of them do medical work and they get involved in doing environmental uh, micro and mycology and I must say they do it poorly. Hmm. I'm going to produce a paper for AOH in Melbourne on that subject. And AOH, can you go? That was my next question. Then, Cliff, I'll get you in here. In the U.S., we've got the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, and we have you know certified industrial hygienists. What's the corresponding group in Australia? The, the, the parallel organizations here, um, AIOH, which are is a mouthful. It's Australian Institute of Occupational Hygienists. Um, we call them occupational hygienists. You call them industrial hygienists, but they're essentially doing the same job. Okay. Okay. That, that, organiza that organization here is about 650 members, uh, which is pretty, pretty sizable for Australia. And they all do all the, the types of assessments like your CIHs do, and mainly as it applies to work environments. And then, of course, the building biologists that you met. Um, and uh, last year, we tried to start a, a College of Indoor Environmental Professionals, and that's taking a, a fair time to gestate. So that's about all that we have here at the moment, uh, early days. And the building biologists were an interesting group. I, you know, they were um, very interested in 
indoor air quality, and they were a little leery about mold. I wonder if, uh, why is that, David? What, what they seem? I, I didn't expect this. You know, you hear about all the litigious nature of the United States and all, and they they seem worried about litigation and legal issues. And I didn't expect to hear that when I went to Australia. Uh, professionally, I think people have had it easy. I mean, I went to an expert witness workshop last year at uh, the AIIH conference in Sydney, and there were 30 people in the room doing this course, and two of us had been to court, and only one of us wanted to go to court, and that was me. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody else in the room had been sent along to do this course, and even though they were professional archivists, they didn't want to be doing legal work. It's just, it's hard work. It's not fun. But but it's fun to see people get justice. Hmm. And the building biologists are the same. I mean, they're a young group. They're just really getting their feet on the ground. And they're young at heart. And, you know, they, they don't even want to crawl under houses. So how can they do mold work? Yeah. Yeah, you've got to be ready to get under there and get dirty. Um, that's interesting. Cliff, I'm sorry. I, I kind of dominated it as always here. Let me get it over to you. Okay, thanks, uh, David. In the USA, indoor environmental professionals and remediation contractors can choose from several guidance documents from mold remediation. What guidance documents, if any, are used by indoor environmental professionals in Australia to provide guidance on mold remediation projects? Well, we, uh, apart from all the, the published books that we use, you know, uh, the Green Book and so on, we, we refer to those as well. But um, <clears throat> here, you know, uh, what we base our industry on is the S520 and the, you know, the S500. I mean, it, it begins and starts there. Uh, and then go their own way after that but uh, yeah, the, the same publications that you would use are the ones that we grab and refer to okay and so there are no government guidelines or uh, I think there was one set of government guidelines for mold remediation is that true? There was an Australian mold guideline but that, that was produced by my former employees uh, employers I should say Michael oh. uh, it wasn't produced by the government, the Australian Mold Guidelines was produced privately. So to my knowledge, there's nothing that's come out of the government in, 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 in recent or living memory. Okay. And that, is this, where does the white, the vinegar come from? Um, the cleaning of mold with the vinegar, <laughs> David, can you, can you enlighten our listeners on that? I mean, I, I heard repeatedly that that people were using vinegar to clean up mold. And, and I've heard of that in the past. And then, you know, with some people with chemical sensitivities, they want a, a more natural product. But um, I, I never had heard of it as, you know, often. And, and it seemed like almost uh, a, a standard of care. Is that accurate? Well, up until uh, a few years ago, the mold industry was very much led by Michael Leggia. And that's their preferred mold cleaning solution. So they did a lot of training. Uh, I mean, a lot of training. They were running courses four times a year and uh, getting, you know, 25 people uh, to courses. Uh, so they were teaching 100 people a year. And essentially their solution was, uh, their mold cleaning solution of choice was vinegar. <laughs> and, uh, you know, diluted uh, 80-20 with water. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty good detergent, don't, don't get me wrong, but whether it's microbiocidal or, or, or uh, maltcidal, fungicidal, um, I'm not so sure. <laughs> and Cliff, I, I, maybe you'd like to jump in on that. I didn't know, if, I, I didn't have that in the, in the background information I sent you. And I don't know if I mentioned that to you. I'm curious what your thoughts are. You, you're fairly... Uh... I, I guess I've got a couple of thoughts. I, I think, um, you know, what I'd like to do is just get some more general information, David, if I could. Uh, in Australia, what is the general opinion towards the use of antimicrobials as tools in mold remediation uh, in Australia? Uh, I... 
I have, I'm hesitant to generalise, and uh, it's my professional opinion that they're an essential tool in remediators' toolkits. I think you, you guys agree with that. And uh, I, I then hesitate and, and, and add, just as long as they validate their choice, they, the, the remediators, validate their choice of whatever biocide and biostat they choose and don't use it in place of basic cleaning, containment and cutout, which really should come first. Okay. Uh, that's good. What would the dominant antimicrobial chemistries uh, being used in Australia now for mold remediation? Well, just about everything that you've got. I mean, there's the microvan range, of course, chlorines and chlorine dioxide, uh, peroxides, uh, EG, there's a fair bit of serum used here. Yeah. Vinegar, as we just discussed, peracetic acids, quats, <laughs> copper, Foster's products, Fiberlock range, enzymes, triclosan, even biosweet. I mean, we have got everything down here that you've got. Okay. I, I wasn't sure because, you know, in certain situations, some of the technology, uh, you know, that's EPA registered in the United States may or may not, uh, you know, be transferable. Um, what about coatings? Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, some of the coating manufacturers. Uh, are coatings looked upon favorably in Australia? Oh, what do you mean by coatings? Well, you know, following remediation. I guess it would be like an antifungal paint or, you know, some sort of Band-Aid oh, or coating that it goes over the surface following remediation to inhibit, you know, future problems. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I would call it encapsulation. So... <laughs> We, uh, as a must-have, if you've got a beam in a building that can't be taken out and it's going to fall down if you take it out, then, uh, sure, you've got to encapsulate. And but to have that tool at the end of the day in case you get to that situation. But, you know, the, the view here is, and it's my view as well, that, that it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's support of last resort. Uh, you know, it's no substitute for good, a good remediation technique. Gotcha, and I agree. Cliff, um, I, I guess go, now going back, now going back to the vinegar, um, <laughs> I guess it's yes, what we would call vinegar. Yeah, I guess it's white vinegar, acetic acid, is is, is what they're using. And um, you know, I, I don't know that. You know, I, I think in certain situations that certain types of acids, you know. You know, have some efficacy. You know, citric acid. You know, is used. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised why they didn't use citric instead of. Um, you know, why they didn't. Why, why they, they didn't, didn't use, use citric? it? Because it's because it's too dear. I mean, vinegar is the, the cheapest product you can buy, and you can buy it pretty well readily from every corner shop, and um, it 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 really fitted in with that lady's. Uh, philosophy about uh, the world pr pr provides the answers. All you have to do is look for them. That's her philosophy. And you know, she took vinegar as being something that uh, worked for her and had a nice ring to it. And it could be natural, and uh, it could even be all natural. <laughs> it didn't have to come from um, a refinery to be called acetic acid. Where most most uh, acetic acid comes from, but if you if you buy it um, in the, in the malt vinegar or in the white vinegar form, um, then it limits the concentration, so you don't have OHNS exposure. And you know, kind of uh, it, it, the, the allure of vinegar built from there. I I don't uh, necessarily want to dwell on it, but that's I think the philosophy behind where I'm, I'm glad that you cleared it up and you know to me the one thing that I could really never understand about some natural products such as vinegar is you know you have this inherent smell and you know certain people are sensitive you know to smells and I could just never understand more. you know personally you know I, I find you know the smell of vinegar to be uh, you know, a little irritating and, you know, possibly offensive depending on exactly how strong it is. But, you know, in any event, I'm not going to dwell on it. Back to you, Joe. David, the, now, I'd say 15 years ago now, in the U.S., we had a, a mold is gold rush after some, after a lawsuit, one one well-known lawsuit in uh, 
Texas, Ballard versus Farmers. And, and there was quite a bit of um, hysteria essentially whipped up. There were some medium stories, media stories about toxic black mold that, that heightened the public awareness. Did any of that carry over into Australia? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I saw uh, after the Brisbane flood floods, for example, uh, you know, people um, being forced back into living in homes which, you know, just should never have been uh, re-inhabited. I mean, if you, America, I'm sure that if, if a house gets overtopped by floodwaters, they knock it down. And um, this whole mold rush thing has never happened here uh, to any great extent, but with the fact that we've all got access to the internet and we can read these big stories and come up with uh, you know something to blame, um, as I was talking with, with off air, people people get focused about it, and um, you know then uh, <clears throat> some people who do get sick can blame that, and uh, sometimes the sickness is not real. You know, David. Um, you know, in terms of the you know flooding in houses, I, I think in many situations in the United States, mold has more heightened awareness than homes you know that have been flooded and certainly you know we have we have severe flooding going on now uh in minnesota mississippi river flooding and you know the scary thing is minnesota's kind of the top of the river and that water to go all the way down and you know so yeah i think that there's going to be a lot more um is it the same in australia does mold get more prevalent than you know the hazards and of flood water? Unfortunately, it does, because uh, when you have floods, it's such a cataclysmic event that um, getting people dried out back into their homes, paying the consequences, seems to be the dictum. Um, you know, in, in Brisbane, which was our worst real flood event for in, in my lifetime anyway, um, yeah, I, I saw uh, evidence of, of this in the aftermath up there. You know, even our Prime Minister at the time, who was Kevin Rudd, you know, he was caught on film wading through the, flo the floodwaters, you know, only to become infected and needing hospitalisation two days later. Imagine if that had happened to your president. <laughs> huh. Well, I mean, I can tell you, you know, we had a situation here that was somewhat similar. Uh, this goes back. Uh, to, we had some flooding that was post-Hurricane Ivan. And there was actually a chief of police. And this person was was waiting in flood water, trying to direct traffic and emergency uh, activities. And he ended up dying. And the reason that he died is he ended up getting a blister on his foot. And it got infected with you know, pathogens that were in the water. And, you know, he was diabetic and... That was it, you know, uh, and you know, it was a horrible situation. So I think people just, but but for some reason, it just goes over their head, you know. Then they're back to mold again. I I don't know. I, I just, you know, I have one question. I think before halftime, because I think that this will kind of play into what uh, Dieter's going to chat about. In in Australia, do you have a loser pays legal system? We do. Okay. All right. So if if someone were to sue their landlord, let's say, over mold contamination in their home, and they lost that lawsuit, they would have to pay the landlord's costs for defending? Totally. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And that I'm sure that has um, kept the lid on some lawsuits, whether they were uh, warranted or not. Um, do you see many lawsuits in Australia over mold contamination? Um, currently got 15 on my plate. You've got 15 on your plate. So it's picking up. Is that your experience? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Is it? Um, that, is that something that's more recent? It goes up and down, but uh, in the time that, that I've been, you know, working in mold, you know, I might, yeah, it might have been. You know, 10 years ago, there might have been one case a year. 
Now it's one one new case a week. Hmm. So things do see there, there's either an awareness that it's an issue, or or there's been maybe some precedent established where people feel more comfortable filing these lawsuits and, and thinking that. Uh, uh, go there, ahead. There's also um, no win, no pay happening here as well. And how does that work? No win, no pay. Yeah, basically, um, if you've got a good case, the lawyers will take the case <clears throat> uh, on the basis that they don't get paid unless they win. Okay, contingency, okay. Uh, it's con contingency, uh, pro bono, there's a, a, a number of different ways you can describe it, but mm -hmm. they all mean different things. But what they don't tell you is that if they lose, you have to pay the other side. Hmm. Interesting. Fascinating. Uh, the way things are around the world. It's been. It's. I, I've enjoyed meeting you and going over and talking to others and and just trying to kind of compare notes on what we see, what you see. It's been really interesting. Let me um, do this, David. We've got to stop. Thank our sponsors, and then we're going to bring Doctor Wow in and uh, get a couple comments from him because he's got to leave early today. And then we'll get back to the second half of our interview. So, everybody, we're going to bring back in about 90 seconds with David Lark, the principal mycologist at Mold Lab in Newcastle, Australia. And, of course, we'll bring in our own technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview with David Lark, the principal mycologist at Mold Lab in Newcastle, Australia. And I want to add my thanks for being up at 2 a.m. to uh, enlighten our listeners and uh, to join us, David. It's been wonderful. We're also going to bring on our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dieter, do we have you on the line? Yes, I'm here. All right, Dieter, any, any comments, questions, anything you'd like to add? Uh, well, yeah. First of all, hello, David. Good uh, hearing you again after I saw you uh, three or so weeks ago. And thanks for <laughs> staying up very early in the morning. My God, there are, what, 13, uh, 12, 14 hours difference, time difference between Pittsburgh and uh, Western Australia, Eastern Australia. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But uh, David mentioned it, you mentioned it, and I mentioned it. Yeah, there are many ways of killing any kinds of pests that we don't want to uh, have around our house. I personally used for many years Durspan in a very uh, 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 nice way, and it controlled insects in my house. I didn't kill my cats. Nobody got affected by it because I know how to make a 0.25% solution from the concentrate, and 
I was in a couple of cases uh, where I had to investigate Durspan use, and uh, somebody made, instead of a 0.5% solution, a 5% solution, and that darn decimal point <laughs> screwed up everything. <laughs> every time, huh, Peter? Took them forever. So in other words, you can use any kind of pesticide. It doesn't matter which one you are using. Uh, you can use it intelligently, and you can screw up with it. I personally used just the other day. I sprayed one gallon of Clorox, uh, chlorine solution, and I used it to kill uh, my uh, in my driveway to kill weeds. And uh, it works, by the way, very nicely on it, particularly if it doesn't rain an hour later. And I use it like once a month or thereabouts in my shower uh, stall. And I spray it around over there. I don't keep my nose in it. I spray it. I close the door, take a shower the next day, and everything is gone. So there is nothing wrong with that. And I'm sure, yeah, with... uh, Vinegar, you can kill mold, and for that matter, bacteria. What vinegar is one step away from alcohol, and alcohol does a very, very good job. And uh, all of the above, people don't realize that. So you don't, you know, you don't need DDT. I don't even know whether DDT would work on mold. Probably it would. I know from my garden, I sometimes use what is here called weed and feed. It is what, uh, 3D uh, is the, the broadleaf killer. It's um, selective toxicology. It, uh, it feeds uh, the, the grass and it kills the broadleaves. So that's pretty good. And, uh, yeah, you can overuse that one and you can fool around with it. And you can use it wisely. And uh, so uh, uh, you, you sometimes hear these horror stories not because of the chemical, but the misuse of the chemical. And people you know, who, should, who don't know how to use it professionally shouldn't use it. And I'm pretty sure that Cliff knows that from his former business, that in, in many instances there was nothing wrong with his product. But somebody complained and I said, yeah, fellow, did you read the label? And you know, the first question was, what label? <laughs> and said, the label that comes with the bottle. Oh, no, I just sprayed it on there. Well, uh, anyway, so that is fine. I'm, uh, I'm also a little bit interested. In fact, I'm going to a meeting talking about asbestos cases. And I'm uh, 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 I'm not surprised, but apparently asbestos is waking up again in Australia, and um, I'm not uh, sure about the details. Well, I think... But in the United States, about 30 years ago, I said by the year 2000, there will be absolutely no more asbestos cases in the United States. Well, I was wrong. They're still going on. There are thousands and thousands there. And as uh, David mentioned, uh, uh, in Germany, we have the same uh, system we have uh, in Australia. If you have a nuisance lawsuit and you lose, you pay. It's as simple as that. And that keeps a lot of fraudulent and stupid lawsuits uh, out of the courts, they have better things to do and concentrate on, 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 on more things. David, before we, it, let me ask David about that Mr. Fluffy sure. thing. Um, I read the article, and it wasn't, you know, it was just an article from a newspaper. So you know how you have to take that with a grain of salt. Essentially, uh, the the gist of it, from what I could see, was that a company had gone around and, I guess, installed. Um, insulation in attics and maybe in walls, I'm not sure, and it turned out that it was asbestos-containing insulation and that now people are claiming to have asbestosis and and that there may be some lung cancer cases that come out of this. Can you enlighten us a little bit, David? Is that accurate? That's uh, pretty much the case, and this has been known now for quite a number of years that this has happened. What they were doing is they had a truck-mounted system and they were actually blowing 
Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they were blowing uh, the lovely uh, Mr. Fluffy product into the ceilings, taking the money and run and um, you know, into the next street and do two, two or three more jobs and into the next suburb and do another 100 jobs. And uh, at this point in time, they're still trying to determine how many houses in Canberra have been affected. Hmm. Uh, sure, and of course, I mean, if somebody gets his house insulated on Friday and claims to have asbestosis or lung cancer on Monday, well, we know that is not true. But uh, anyway, it's uh, uh, well, it's 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 exactly what I just said about pesticides. If they are stupid people who don't know what they are doing, they shouldn't do the job. Well, you, yeah. I mean, let me ask you this question, though. I mean, you're, you're looking 30 years, 25 years later, 15, whatever it is, um, and the people are, are the, the claim I saw was asbestosis. And I, I was a little surprised that it was asbestosis because I didn't think the exposure was high enough. You know, even though they did spray it into their home, they said they saw these blue particles all around their home. Does that make sense to you? Well, yeah, this is now quite a number of years later. It's a couple of decades later, so there's been plenty of time for that to have occurred. Yeah, I just didn't know if the exposure was high enough for asbestosis. For lung cancer, I understand, but I was a little surprised that there was asbestosis claims because I just didn't think the exposure was high enough, but I guess they pumped it filled with, you know, this stuff was all through their homes. A personal friend of mine survived Mount Everest two days without support and he died of mesothelioma that he was exposed to as a child building cubby houses in the tree in the backyard of his house hmm. David you have his another exposure, Go ahead. his exposure was absolutely minimal and he survived uh, two days on Everest with no support and given up for dead and then dies of mesothelioma hmm David, you had an interesting story I'd like to have you tell our listeners about a project you did during the Olympics. And I guess this was in, in Sydney? 2000. 2000 Olympics yeah. in Sydney. Talk, talk to us about that project. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. About 14 years ago, and uh, I, I, I shudder when I think that it's that long ago, but... Uh, a friend of mine was the asset manager at the stadium, at the Sydney Olympic Stadium, when it was built. And uh, unlike most Olympic stadiums, uh, which are purpose-built just for the Olympics, this was a, a multi-use facility and still is. So you can change the uh, the field for all different sorts of sports. But um, they had, of course, the Olympic running track, which is a pretty sacrosanct piece of turf. Uh, not not turf, but uh, rubber. And um, we were playing uh, football. Uh, we have three or four different types of football down here, but uh, two of them use a rectangular field and have in goals very similar to your gridiron uh, fields. And those in goals had to encroach on the running track. So they were laying turf, grass over the track they were watering it, they were fertilising it, and we all know what happens. It grew mould prodigiously underneath grass. And when I got involved, they'd spent $160,000 on consultants to try and tell them what the blue marking on the track was when they lifted up the turf and found shock horror that their, their lovely uh, track was black. So uh, I got involved through... As I said, my friend who was the asset manager, he recommended that someone with a little bit of uh, biological science be involved, and uh, I came in and took my microscope along and put it on the track and showed them that they had mould and that was their problem. So then I was invited to uh, put forward a process whereby they could eradicate the mould because at this stage, it was six weeks before the Olympics were going to the world, and they wanted it gone. So... Uh, not being a mould remediator, but uh, having an idea about things. Uh, I talked to them about the requirements, and of course it was the Green Games, so I couldn't use anything that was toxic. Um, I couldn't use anything that was going to injure the, 
the precious athletes if they if they slipped and, and tripped and grazed themselves on the track. Uh, there were a whole lot of uh, requirements, and the, the worst requirement was that whatever I recommended had to go before the Olympic Committee uh, in Europe and be vetted. So I uh, did some cultures, I did some microscopy, I did some photography, I put it into a report, I decided that uh, at that stage uh, it was a simple method to treat this track with uh, peroxide, which would break down in uh, a, a fairly fair quick order and be washed away. And uh, I put that forward in a report and it went to uh, Lucerne and got peer-reviewed by uh, a number of mycologists uh, in Europe at a very high level and got the tick. So two weeks before the Olympics, when all of the uh, rehearsals were going on, uh, we got to spray the track, but not until I did a demonstration to the Australian Olympic Committee uh, to prove that it wouldn't damage the track. So here we are. I'm kitted up in my zoot suit, a spray pack on the back. I've got 10% peroxide in the in the drum on the back, and I spray it on their nice clay red track, and it turns white. <laughs> As it would do. I mean, as everyone knows, when you put, you know, peroxide on a, an organic substrate, it, it reacts and it fizzes up and it releases oxygen bubbles and uh, you see everything turning white. But the track wasn't the only thing that was white. The whole Olympic Committee, their faces were absolutely ashen white. <laughs> I turned a section of their track white and it was going to be shown to the world within a short time. <laughs> well, I went and got the fire hose and I hosed it off and everything was good from there and we got to do uh, the track on three occasions and the ODs at the end and uh, we went to the world and nobody was the wiser. And nobody got asbestosis. <laughs> and, no, and no animals were even affected by the experience. That's right, too. <laughs> all right, yeah, I got to run now. But, hey, good talking to all of you. I will be back next week, and uh, uh, we take it from there, all right? Cliff, um, any questions before we move on? Um, yeah, I think one of the things in David's resume was that he had done some, I guess, development work with antimicrobial products, and I was just wondering, uh, you know, what type of chemistries you, you worked with. It wasn't um, shattering chemistries. The, the, uh, the two biocides that we worked with were ones that are readily vaporizable. Uh, and they were acetic acid and peroxide. Okay. And peroxide, of course, has a much lower uh, uh, vapor pressure than does acetic acid because uh, acetic acid is more volatile than petrol, in fact, more flammable than petrol if you get it in uh, 70 or 80, whereas we were using 95%. So pretty dangerous stuff. In fact, it's very, very nasty to your lungs as well. Uh, as the good doctor who's just left would attest to, but um, we we were it was more the application or the way of application that we were, we were researching, and our patents are about using vaporous peroxide or vaporous acetic acid or or, or any volatile biocide in the vaporous form. And what we found was uh, at least a hundred, probably a thousand times more effective in the vaporous form than it is in liquid. Hmm. And we're able to therefore use that in much lower concentrations than was hitherto in the formulations of the products that we were treating uh, to give incredible extensions in shelf life of those foods. And uh, typically baked goods might have a 14-day shelf life if it's if it's okay, some, some shelf lives uh, of baked goods here are only uh, five days. But, uh, you know, we could give those products a month. And if we treated uh, hams or small goods or uh, you know, sliced meats and things like that, we could give them 
they have typically a 45 or a, a 60 day shelf life. We could actually take those out to uh, 180 days quite comfortably by doing just a surface treatment with this vaporous biosa. Hmm. Cliff, any follow? Are they using it? Did it catch on? <laughs> no. Um, we were doing the, the research in co in uh, cooperation with a, a gases company who I think has disappeared off the face of the planet now, but uh, it was called BAC Gases. I think they're now part of the Lindy Group. Okay. And um, because uh, our sponsor <laughs> disappeared, um, they spent a lot of money getting to the point of uh, installing one plant in Sydney, a food factory, and after one trial, they decided they didn't want our process. So... Uh, at that point in time, the, the project died. And uh, along with it, my 10 patents no longer get support. You know, in the United States, I, I could never quite quite figure it out. Like, I've traveled to Europe, traveled to Mexico, and I've, I've been on Australia once, but I, I don't remember. In, in Australia, does your milk, is your milk refrigerated or does it come in, uh, does, it, does it come in boxes? Both. We have UHT milk and we have uh, refrigerated pasteurized milk. Okay. Because I could never figure that out in the United States. It's almost as though they want the milk to have an expir a short expiration date on it, and it, you know it gets wasted. You know, and, and it just seems that you know when you go to other countries that you know may not be able to refrigerate it, they have the I guess the pasteurization process, and it goes in a box, and I suspect it, you know, it would last for many, many years, and I could never understand why they don't do that in the U.S. You don't have uh, UHT milk? I'm sorry. High temperature. There's, two, there's two different heat treatments for milk. Pasteurization is only 72 degrees. Right. And UHT is uh, ultra-high temperature is what it stands for. Right. And it, it is a sterile process, and they sterilise the the the, 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 you know, the uh, packs with peroxide, and then they flash the peroxide off before it actually gets filled with the milk. Hmm. Right. So you know you've you've got a sterile container <clears throat> with a milk that's been flash pasteurised uh, to. Uh, I think 132 degrees C for uh, a very short period of time, which is confidential, but um, then they put that into packs, and, and that has a taste. It tastes burnt to me, hmm. whereas pasteurized milk that's in, just in, uh, also in, sold you know, widely in, in Australia in um, HDP bottles or in um, Tetra Packs uh, doesn't have that taste. It, it basically tastes like real milk that's been just processed. But um, cream also, uh, they put peroxides in cream. It's, it's actually, um, it's allowed in uh, your country and it's allowed in our country to do that. Thank you. David, Let's. I want to go to um, like indoor air quality in general. And back in 1991, I guess it was, our, our EPA released a... Um, a document called Building Air Quality, a Guide for Facility Owners and Building Managers. Um, and this was as a result after, you know, a lot of complaints about what eventually became known as sick building syndrome. We had tightened up a lot of buildings back in the late 70s and, you know, with the energy crisis and all, the Arab oil embargo, etc. We had a lot of complaints. And then um, EPA came out with this document. Has there been any similar document in Australia? Oh, Joe, our EPA is not that enlightened. I guess I'll get castigated for saying that, but um, yeah, there was one uh, Australian government pub publication that's been produced in my living memory, but uh, you know, uh, nothing much more than that that's got any legislative teeth at all. So do, do the public health authorities in Australia recognise indoor air quality as a potential public health issue? people as such. No, I, I don't believe so. Um, but, you know, there's recognition starting to emerge, but it's not in the forefront of many people's minds. Uh, you know, we do have a program here called Neighbours, N-A-B-E-R-S, and that's like LEAD, I guess. 
which has an IAQ component in the rating system. But that's just the beginning and applies mainly to large commercial buildings only. I see. And having, having said that, I should say that uh, last week on National Radio News, there was an IAQ issue you know, that came up. And that's the only one I've heard since the last Legionella outbreak. Uh, you know, we have those from time to time, like you do over there, and the press jumps on them, but the interest lasts a few days and they move on to the next story. You know, IAQ is not a. No, not in the forefront of people's minds at all. Hmm. Now, Legionella was at one time. I understand that was a big deal for uh, a while back and that you have some pretty stringent, I don't know if the requirements or guidelines on Legionella. I think, I think your uh, OSHA is just catching up with uh, uh, AS3666, which really came out of that uh, huge Legionella outbreak that we had in uh, in Wollongong uh, way back now, uh, 30 years ago. But um, the stringent control over cooling towers, particularly in Australia, has been just become manifest and created a huge industry in, in Legionella testing, which unfortunately I've never been part of. But, um, yeah, the, the Legionella thing here has been very much held under wraps and it's only been in uh, recent times in unusual circumstances, like an aquarium, for example. Great place to have Legionella. Hmm. Lovely. But um, I, I, I had one uh, recently. Uh, you, you met Keegan Palmer when you were down here? I believe so, and, yes. Uh, yeah. He, he, he rang me uh, recently to say, look, I'm doing an assessment on this house, and it's got a cellar that's got three feet of water in it. What? What biological questions should I be answering before I, I bring people in to start the, you know, the, the mould work? And uh, I said, well, the first thing I'd worry about snakes. <laughs> yeah. He stopped at his tracks and he went, no, 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 I meant microbiological. I said, yeah, well, it, it is cold in Melbourne. You're probably not going to have trouble with snakes, but sure as hell you're going to have Legionella. And what what is a silo? I'm not sure. Is that what you said? There's three feet of water in a silo. In, in the uh, in the cellar underneath the house. Oh, in the cellar. Okay, okay. Oh, yeah, that's a bad one. That's always a trouble. That's always a problem. Now that leads me to another area of, of, of interest. And, and, and yeah, we're running low on time, so I want to hit this one real quick. It seemed like when I was over there, there was a tremendous thirst for knowledge on building science issues. Um, has you know here in the states, we've had a fifteen to twenty year, oh, and up in Canada and even before us, there was a lot of knowledge about you know what building sciences are and how you know buildings need to work in a holistic manner and that you have different um, systems that need to work together and that we need to build differently in different parts of the country based on the climate and the geography and that there were micro and macro climates that we had to take into consideration when building. And, and we're, we're still a long way from being perfect on this, obviously, but what's the state of the building science world in, uh, in Australia? Probably don't know this, but uh, through this radio program and the training that I got and uh, the training that other people like uh, Nicole are bringing back, with the whole awareness of building science as a contributor to our industry is just dawning in Australia. Hmm. And that is just amazing to me that the people who should be knowledgeable are either keeping it to themselves or don't know. I mean, you know, you think that architects, you think that, you know, uh, people like that, but there just seems to be this huge gap between the people that know about building science and the people that should know about building science. And I think it's one of the things that we can really do to help the industry grow up and become a profession. And be able to explain a lot of the things that happen, um, what causes, you know, the, the likes of the, the, the case that I presented down there at Janadaka. I mean, uh, only when I, I read, uh, you know, some of the, the building science work did I actually understand what was going on in that job. Hmm. 
Now, I know that Joe Steebrook, who's kind of our building science guru here in the States, I'd say, I don't know, Cliff, you may know better than me, 10, 15 years ago, he went over and did at least one, maybe a couple presentations with uh, another guy we've had on the show, Ashley Easterby. And I don't know whether it just didn't catch on or whether, uh, like you say, maybe people were just kind of keeping it to themselves and it hasn't been spread around as much as it should be. Cliff, do you know anything about that? I really don't, Joe. Okay. Well, I look forward to trying to help to, uh, you know, and, and Cliff and I do our best to raise the awareness of building science and how important it is on a worldwide uh, scale here, and, and, and hopefully we've been able to help a little bit in that respect. David, before um, before we go, I had one other question I wanted to ask you, and that was um, about the, the insurance uh, industry over there. First of all, for people doing mold remediation, disaster restoration work um, on the contracting side. Is good insurance available, readily available for people, pollution liability? Or is, I assume it's similar, maybe I'm wrong, that you know you have your general contractor's insurance, your general liability, which commonly excludes pollution. Um, is it the same there, and is pollution liability available? To my knowledge, I've not heard it discussed, and uh, I think I would have done so. It's not something that, yeah, we have the general liability insurances and we have workers' comp and professional indemnity, but the pollution, I don't think, has come here yet. Okay, and what about, so you do have, um, we call it errors and omissions, professional liability insurance for the consulting side of things. That is available? Oh, yeah, we all have that. We, we, we wouldn't get out of bed without that. Okay. Okay, great. Cliff, anything you'd like to add? No. Nope. All right. Well, David, I I want to thank you for – I know it's late at night. You got up here and uh, joined us, and, and, and thanks for your hospitality while we were in Australia. Uh, it was it was lovely to meet your wife, and um, you know next time over, I hope to get up and see your lab in Newcastle. We were kind of in southern Australia. You're a little more uh, mid north uh, area there. I'd love to get back and see that sometime. Uh, before we go, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add, or anything at all that you'd like to get out to the listeners? Hey, just to say that I lodged a very stern complaint with the. Uh, uh, I won't m mention the name of the hotel that we're in, but uh, I made it quite clear that uh, they should do something about their uh, IAQ. <laughs> yeah, they had some issues, that's for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Did you you didn't do any sampling there, or no? I didn't have to. Your your both of your blood noses were good enough evidence for me. Yeah, yeah. Dieter and I were. Uh, it was it was interesting. Um, I don't know whether I had some carryover from the dry plane or whatever but uh yeah they they need to look at the building science things there you i don't like a mechanical system above my shower that's just not the best place <laughs> but anyway um we do greatly appreciate you joining us this week on iaq radio david lark with the mold lab over in newcastle australia i hope you hopefully you can get a little sleep here before the start of uh i guess it's saturday huh Oh, yeah. Before uh, Saturday, I'm sure you've got uh, work piled up because uh, you've got some people away. But thanks for joining us. We really appreciate having you. Good on it, Joe. I really thank you as well. All right. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying once again thanks to our guest, David Lark, uh, out of Newcastle, Australia. Great, great job, David. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, Cliff, the Z-Man, nice job, Cliff, as always. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joe. Uh, good to have you. Um, I guess Studio D is, uh, or Studio C there. You're going to pack up a couple things and send them on to me. Where are you in the conference room, I guess? Yeah, I'm in the conference room. It seems to work okay. That's another good studio right there. Well, we'll see you in two weeks, Cliff. Uh, we're going to take the week off next week for the 4th of July. We're going to celebrate the birthday of our grand nation here and uh then we'll be back july 11th we've got a great show lined up terry brennan and lou harriman we're going to talk about the epa's new document that's been out it's been out about i don't know three or four maybe six months now um they've got a, a new document on moisture in buildings and we look forward to that i also want to thank our 
engineer at the controls, Jessica Lawson. Things went well, and uh, we got some photos. We're going to update the Facebook page, folks, so check out some photos on the Facebook page there for IAQ Radio. Last but not least, uh, oh, i got to remember our good technical director, the good doctor, Dietrich Weil. Thank you, Dieter, as always, for joining us. And most importantly, those of you out there listening in, please come back in two weeks. Uh, we'll get Cliff's blog out middle of the week next week. And then in two weeks, we'll be back with uh, Lou and Terry. Please come back and join us then for the next episode of IAQ Radio. Able to cry.